Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer or artist and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field. And this particular guest is here at the Writers and Illustrators of the Future workshop for 2022 as a contest judge and an amazingly brilliant artist. Welcome, Larry Elmore. Hello. Thank you for the introduction. That was a big one. (laughs) (laughs) So... um, for those of you who don't know Larry Elmore, and it's conceivable there might be one or two of you out there, so for your benefit, I will um, give you a bit of his, his pedigree. Um, he's been creating science fiction and fantasy art for more than 40 years, and in the 70s, he began freelancing and was published in a few magazines, including Heavy Metal and National Lampoon. And after being contacted by TSR Inc., the company that produced the role-playing game Dungeons & Dragons, Larry worked there from 1981 to 1987, and a lot of that original art is Larry Elmore's. While at TSR, he helped set the standards for gaming art, and he then went on from there with uh, AD&D and Star Frontiers and other gaming books. He may be best known for his work with the work in the world of Dragonlance. So you've got some amazing pre even what I talked about there with uh, the uh, military and and uh, helping to make our government's money and whatnot like that. Well, uh, I, I'm from Kentucky and I grew up just about 45, 50 miles south of Fort Knox, and we drove by that a lot. Uh, was we going to Louisville or something? Their family. And Dad would always say, there's where they keep all the gold. And I thought, man, I would love to see that. And uh, and he said, nobody gets in there, nobody. And uh, so I'll jump ahead in time. I was working at Fort Knox as Illustrator years later. And my boss came to me and said, I've got a job for you to work on, but you've got to work on it at home. You can't walk, work on it government time. But, you know, and there's no pay. But um, you, if you, it's for the go vault. It's for the, that part. He said, if you do this job with no pay, it wasn't much, you get a tour through the go vault. And they had just refused the governor of Kentucky to take a tour. I mean, they didn't let anybody in there hardly. Oh, my God, I could actually get a tour. And I did the work at home, and I got a tour of the go vault. I was inside, inside the big vault, and I saw stacks and stacks of bars of gold in these cells. It was one of the highlights of my life. I never dreamed. Very few people go in there. Yeah. And uh, because the go vault's chain of command was not through the Fort Knox chain of command. They was working for this... Department Secretary of the money side of things in Fort Knox was an armored center. So they couldn't go through that chain of command. They had to go either through the government, another system that would take a long time so they, t- they could jump the system, borrow me if I do the work at home. And I had a secret clearance also. And so with that clearance was good. And so I got to take a tour. It was just just the right thing set up. And it was like the highlight of uh, something I can always brag about. I said, I've been inside that building, you know, just me, little old me. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. It was, it was unique. Absolutely. So you've been an artist for all your adult oh, life, life, maybe yeah. even more than that. Yeah. You know, so how did you get started? How did the, how'd the initial 
impetus to do art get started with you? I don't know. I think when I was a child, I, I, don't, I don't get into a long story, but after World War II, my father uh, got tuberculosis. And I was born in 1948. And the day my mom went to the hospital to have me, my dad got himself checked out. He'd had this cough all the time. And he ended up going to t tuberculosis, what they call him back then, a sanitarium. It was a, a place to isolate so he wouldn't spread tuberculosis. And so, so mom took me home from the hospital the same day he went away. And usually back then, when you went to one of those places, you usually died there. But uh, Dad went back and forth these places the first 11 years of my life or 10 years, and he finally beat tuberculosis and lived to be 94 years old. So it's a good story. But during that time, my, my mom and I lived in a little house in the country, had no money because, you know, Dad couldn't work, and she had me. And But those early years of my life was really... Um, inspiring or something. I didn't, really didn't have too many toys. And mom found an old pencil and gave me a pencil and, and I would draw all the time. And um, her brother would come and take her to the grocery, a little country store about once a month, and she would get four brown bags of groceries and put them in a box. And I would, she would cut all those brown bags out flat and get my little pencil and at that time, electricity and running water had not made it out in the rural areas. And so we didn't have electricity and um, our running water. We had to get our water out of a well, lived like you would in the 20s or 30s. <laughs> and uh, she would light a kerosene lamp and sit on the kitchen table, and I would, under lamplight, I would draw on all those paper bags, both sides, every inch. And when I finished those, I would uh, draw on the box. They'd come in inside and out. And after that was done, she would make a, like a, a house or a garage out of the box, make little windows and stuff. I'd play with that. And then it'd be about time to get groceries again. The cycle would start again. <laughs> and, I mean, that was part of passing the time away, entertaining yourself. I didn't have any brothers and sisters at that time. And um, my sister came along five years after I was born, so... So it was, um, I didn't know, I wasn't old enough to know we were in tough times. My mom was always cheerful. She had a, she was a beautiful woman. She could sing, and she would sing a lot and pass the time, and we'd go for walks through the woods and stuff. And uh, to me, I was like, this is the greatest life in the world. I didn't know that she was worried about getting food the next day. You know? yeah. <laughs> but... Uh, that was the beginning, I guess, and I, I, I never stopped drawing. I loved it, and it was using your imagination. I didn't have a lot of toys. So by using your imagination and making up stories, and my dad was a great storyteller. When he would come home, maybe he'd be home for like three months, have to go back. He would always tell me some neat stories he'd make up, and he was a pretty good artist. You know, He could draw. He would draw things for me, and that really amazed me and pushed me farther. I want to draw as good as Dad. And Mom could draw some, too. And um, like I said, it was both. She, was, she could have been a good singer, I mean, um, if she had the opportunity to further that. And my dad was a, a decent artist with no training, either one of them whatsoever. And, um, but I guess I sort of got 
the art side of both of them, and it's what I love to do. Absolutely. And I caught the bug then, and it's never left me. <laughs> I'm 73 years old. I still love it as much as ever. Yeah. yeah. So is there any point that you, did, that you did any professional training as an artist? Yeah. I, well, I went uh, to grade school. My first grade was in a one-room country school. And uh, the teacher was a big woman, mean. I just thought she was the meanest woman on earth because during class in a one-room country school, no one got up, no one moved, no one spoke unless Spoken you to. got permission, yes. Yeah. And, but I liked that. I sat there and drew my whole ta- tablet up, you know, because she had to teach all classes. They'd teach us in the morning, and then she wouldn't get back to us again the afternoon. So I just sat there and draw. I loved it. And then uh, the next thing, we moved to Louisville, and I went to the biggest elementary school in Louisville, coming from one-room school to the biggest school in Louisville. So that was a culture shock. And all these things were good for me, I think. But, but I just uh, kept drawing, and uh, I, I just liked it. And, and, and eventually, uh, everybody, by the time I got to high school, we moved back to in the same county I was born in, we was from. And... and um, in high school, they started calling me the artist. So if they needed anything drawn, they'd come to me. Some teachers got interested I should go to college and you know major in art. And my parents already planned on me going to college no matter what. And um, and so I went and I majored in art. And uh, did they fund you, or was it scholarship, or was it GI Bill? Uh, the only way I got to go was um, I couldn't have gone financially at that time, but Kennedy before he was assassinated. assassinated. He got a he'd put a bill in to for people that couldn't afford the college to be able to get loans and grants. And after he was assassinated, Bill went ahead and passed. And uh, and with that bill I got enough loans and grants and I worked during the summers. Every summer I'd go to Louisville or someplace and get a job. And then uh, when I finished college had the big sum total of $2,800 to pay back. <laughs> I got out of college in like, what was it, 71 or something? And uh, and it was on a— No, that's like, that's like a, a weekly amount. Yeah, that, that oh, Lord, yeah. That was half my college costs, you know, about half. The rest I'd earned, and I got some from grants, too. Not About the same as I got in loans. So I live very, very cheap. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and we paid back our loans, $28 a month. That was all interest in that off. So that didn't kill us. And when I got out of college, I got drafted straight in the Army. And uh, going through basic training, a lieutenant saw my art, and uh, and he had me to go back over the process and, and see him again. He didn't say what I was going to do, but you know it was it was different, and no, nobody else did that. I had to go do that. I didn't know if I was in trouble or what. And then when I got a basic, there's a night that they they give everybody their orders. Where are you going to go for advanced individual training AIT? And a lot of them was going to Fort Polk, which was called the Gateway to Vietnam. <laughs> <laughs> that was for infantry training. And I kept saying, "Oh, I don't want to go to Fort Polk," you know, because they already told me I'm I'm a little guy. Skinny guy back then, and uh, they said I'd make a great tunnel rat. Well, I I knew what tunnel rats were, and I had a friend of his one, and 
as I'd read letters he wrote to his brother, it was like, oh, God, I'll be dead in a week. And I know me, if they said, we need somebody to volunteer and do that, I probably would, you know, it's like yeah. being a Kentucky boy. Yeah. And uh, But I didn't get orders. And I'm like, what in the world? So I was, I was a holdover there. And then I finally got orders, and it was to work at Fort Knox and a printing place. And I didn't have a, since I was a draftee, I didn't have a, what they call your MOS, which is your training, what you're going to be in the Army. I couldn't get a, a illustrator MOS because I was a draftee. I wasn't a volunteer. I, so they gave me a draftsman MOS. So that was a draftsman. That was my main job. And uh, But when I got to the shop, they instantly had me doing illustrations. And uh, then I did a year there, and then another year, then I got orders and I went to Germany to combat engineer unit and headquarters companies. And there again, they had me doing signs and this and that. I did drive a armored personnel carrier when we went to the field. And that was fun. I loved heavy equipment. Yeah. And that was fun. Yeah. And But I worked as, so after I got out of college, every job I had was art. And uh, when I'd worked at Fort Knox there, well, I was in the Army, they said, when you get out, come back, we will hire you. And so I got hired there. And uh, so I was working there in the 70s. And, um, yeah, all through the 70s as an illustrator. And there at I got— At Fort Knox. At Fort Knox. And there I got to learn—I drew a lot of tanks and helicopters and Russian-American uh, armor equipment. I could do it all from memory. I remember I, I memorized all the tanks and uh, everything. I could just—I could still draw you a pretty good idea of some of the Soviet and American tanks. Mm -hmm. And while I was there, I got a secret clearance, worked on some secret stuff— and I thought it was pretty good. I was going up the ladder, you know, being promoted. And um, my wife and I, by that time, had married, and we'd had two little kids. And yeah. uh, just got a new house, and everything was pretty good. I didn't want to—I still wanted to push farther than just that. So I'd come home and paint till—I was putting in about 20 hours a day, and I did that for years. But, you know, somewhere between 18 and 20 hours a day. Very little sleep. When I say a day, that's around the clock day, twenty four hour day. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And um and so I got published in uh, uh National Lampoon magazine. Um a friend at Fort Knox, one of the guys that worked there with me, he was in the army. When he got out, he was great at writing little you, you see magazines and stuff, you see these one one panel jokes. You see them a lot in every yeah. magazine, just little yeah. one panel jokes, you know, one shot. Yeah. And he started doing that, and he met up with a gag writer that lived in Indiana, and and they he would write the, the gags, and my friend would illustrate the little jokes. And this guy had done some writing for National Lampoon. And so through him, he saw my work, he liked it, he sent my work to National Lampoon. And then they called me up, and I did started illustrating some stuff, doing some neat stuff, funny stuff. At that time, it was the only magazine out there that would publish any type of fantasy or sci-fi stuff, basically. It, there was just nothing out there. And um, so I loved doing that. And I got um, and then I found out that National Lampoon owned Heavy Metal magazine. It was brand new. 
And then I sent some stuff to them, and I got published in heavy metal, so I was getting published in that. And I guess through those publications, and then a, a guy that I worked with, Fort Knox, played Dungeons & Dragons, and he introduced it to the game, and I, I thought it was the neatest game that ever been made. It's just unique, no game played like that. And I like games. And so on a spare of the moment, he was going to send his portfolio in to them, but he did more cartoony kind of work. And he said, they need uh, somebody that does you know, fantasy like you do, oil paintings. And so he got some of my samples and sent with them, and, uh, with his. And then they contacted me later and made me an offer I couldn't refuse. So I quit that and moved to Wisconsin and started working for Dungeons and Dragons. With your wife and family? Or? Wife and family, all of us moved. And they, 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 did, they treated me fantastic. They basically made me an offer I couldn't refuse to go to Wisconsin. I didn't want to move up to the cold north. You know, I was yeah. sort of cozy in Kentucky. You know, you got four good seasons, and I like that. As visually, as an artist, I like to see four seasons, you know. They each have a mood and a feel. Yeah. And so Wisconsin summer was like two weeks long. <laughs> and the rest of the season just... There's a lot of winter, a lot of cold, it seemed like. And, um, but stayed up there, and then, uh, then Keith Parkinson, another artist that worked yeah. there with me, he's a young artist, really good artist. He had a talent for color, just yeah. color. I was really good on drawing all the, the nuts and bolts for a painting, but I wasn't good with color. I didn't see color the way he saw it. And uh, he was weak in drawing, <laughs> so we complimented each other. So we got a studio and started freelancing there in Lake Geneva. And we quit TSR and stayed there in town. And I taught him more on, on how to draw anatomy and things, perspective and things like that. And he um, he couldn't teach. He didn't know how to explain where he'd come up with his colors. <laughs> but I would have him to mix a color. I would say, see this area in my painting? It's in the background. These are trees. They are the same kind of trees in the front, but I know as they recede, they lose the intensity of the color. Well, I couldn't find that color. Right. I would maybe glaze white over it. Well, that, it just chalked up. It didn't look right. And, uh, and I'd have him to come over, and he would start mixing these just garbage-looking colors. He'd get a, a blue and add a little bit of Oak, yellow ochre to it, and then a touch of green and some black or purple. And they had this, just this yicky-looking vomit color. You know, it's like, and I had a nickname for his colors. I won't say it here. But anyway, he would mix that and take a brush, and he would stick it right there where it's supposed to be, and it was perfect. It had the distance, the haze. I'd say, how do you know how to do that? He, he couldn't explain it. That was his talent. Right. And um, he'd ask me, how could I draw something? So he says, I don't know. I just look at things. And I remember what they look like. And he could see color the way I could see shape. And so we helped each other out a lot. And he, he died at 46 with leukemia. I think it's leukemia. And uh, he would have been a, an unbelievable artist. Yeah. He started getting his all this stuff together. By the time he was 42 and 43, he was just great and and it ended yeah so i'm always fascinated when i look at your art 
and I see the detail you're able to get in the color and the clarity and the skin tone and the muscle tone that you have in there. And it's not just that you can do people, you can do dragons, you can do trees, you can do rocks and mountains, all these different things you can do with, you know, some people are really good at A and somebody's good at B and somebody's good at C, but you seem to be really good at A, B, and C. You've got the shape and you've got the color in there now. Well, I, I look back at a lot of the illustrators and stuff. Some of the early Western artists, they do the landscapes and the Indians and horses and everything. And then uh, uh, N.C. Wyeth, was, he really had a big impression on me. The boldness of his figures, the action, and he'd set a mood, even with his black and white paintings. He did a lot of paintings in black and white because color publishing was too expensive, so he'd just do a painting in black and white. And um, I just picked up things from everyone, and I grew up in the country, and so I saw the seasons change, the colors change. And I remember as a kid look, just getting real close to things looking at bark on a tree with my nose almost touching the tree, you know, seeing how it's formed, how it's made, and uh, looking at branches and weeds, everything around you, just studying how it's made and, mm -hmm. and trying to remember the color best I could. And, uh, and like I said, where I lived in Kentucky with the four big seasons, you have all kinds of crazy weather. It can be very hot and you can have wind storms and you can have hail and fog and all these things that when it would weather be sort of crazy I would always be out looking at how does the landscape look now mm -hmm. a lot of sunsets my dad he grew up he did, as he would say I grew up in the woods he spent most of his time in the woods playing and making things yeah. he was orphaned when he was young his parents died early and um, so he he would take me and my brothers and sisters in the woods and show us. He could name about every tree and everything. And I think that was a big influence, just appreciating the land uh, and, and, and the seasons. And, and each had a mood and a feel to it, you know, a flavor. And if you're out in it a lot, I mean, I stayed outside all the time, the, the weather changing and everything has a certain feel and flavor. It affects you. It does mm -hmm. emotionally. And uh, I try to capture some of that in my paintings if I can. It depends on how much freedom I have in a painting. Now I'm, uh, as of now, I've mm -hmm. only got one painting left to finish. I'll be painting just my own stuff from now on. I'll finally put it into all the freelance because I'm getting older and I'm going to run out of time. So I want to paint my own paintings. Right. And a lot of people say, what are you going to paint? Well, I'm going to paint fantasy. I'm not going to start painting bowls of fruit, you know. <laughs> Why would I all of a sudden start painting sad-eyed dogs or something? You know, I'm not going to do that. I'm, I do the same thing, except I do it my way. And the paintings that I've done, some of my better paintings I've done, is when they gave me a lot of freedom. Some of the worst paintings when I was been art-directed to death. And, you had to, you know, they, they're going to tell you how to paint it, what's in it, how many Things are going to be in the painting, blah, blah, blah. And after a while, you're like, this painting's going to be awful. Yeah. And then you're trying to salvage what they told you to put everything in that and, a, and at least a halfway pleasing visual way to where your eye doesn't just shoot off the page and never look back. You know, you got to keep your eye flowing. They don't think about the flow and movement and everything of what's got to go into a painting to keep the viewer 
focused on the areas you want them to see. When some art director, and usually they just got the job, they, a lot of them don't have that much art training or experience in actually doing art, they just, they got a job to do. Right. And um, their boss will tell them, this is what we want, we want everything in it, and they tell the artists, we want everything in it. And it's up to us to try to figure out a pleasing way to put everything in it, you know, and it gets really difficult. And I just got tired of that kind of stuff. And sometimes those jobs paid more money. As an artist, you're always trying to make a living, you know, and you'd take these jobs on knowing that it wasn't going to be a lot of fun, but but it paid the bills. Right, know? right. So now on your art, again, going back to the, your um, your style, I mean, do you consider your strength as your style or your technique or use of color? What do you consider from your perspective your strength as an artist? I don't have a clue because I know— Thank you. That's very helpful. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, I'll try to do my best to explain it, but, but I don't know. I mean, I often wonder why people like my art so much. I don't have—I don't think I have a distinctive technique or—I uh, don't know. I just paint it the best I can. And uh, I try to use the colors that seem real to me to set the mood I want the painting to go in the direction. Uh, usually when I start a painting, I've decided— Unless it's been decided for me. But if I have freedom, I decide what season I want this to be done in. And then that opens a whole color range, color palette up, just a season. The right. time of day, again, opens another color palette up. So a winter scene, it's a sunset winter scene, is totally different than a sunset autumn or spring. It's a whole different color palette. you know. Right. And I guess I just tried to paint... And doing fantasy, you're mainly doing it from imagination and memory. So I just think back of, of time, seasons, the weather, and and I come up with a color scheme that seems to work. And hopefully that helps create the mood. I don't really like to paint just a single figure in a blank background. Right. Like um, we used to call it a figures in fog. You got one figure and just fog up the back. And uh, if I had to do that, I would just quit. And that's, that's not fun. Right. I like to put figures, mm -hmm. people or whatever it is I'm going to paint, in a environment, a real environment. To me, that makes fantasy more real. It's relatable. If you do a wizard floating in air, that's all he's doing, throwing magic over the place, and just a color background, that doesn't. Now, it says as a wizard doing magic, and that's it. I'd rather put him at a certain time of day, look for a, uh, I, I take a lot of pictures of skies, all the time taking pictures of skies, and go through my photos and like, wow, there's a dynamic sky. I remember taking that picture, and I want to use it. Now's the time. And usually I change them up some, make it more. Sure. Than that. But it's got the colors for you. It's got clouds and stuff that's going on. And so... I want to use this guy, and then okay, the landscape. If it was a book, read the book. You know, you, you know, where's the environment he lives in, and then start with that, and just keep it. So now here he is, floating in air, doing the spell, but with a heavy sky, very dramatic, yeah. real setting. He's real now. Mm -hmm. He's not a dream. Now he's real. And my approach is trying to make fantasy as real as possible in my paintings. So now, like a dragon, did you do a lot of? study of 
lizards and kimono lizards and that type of stuff in order to get how you could then do a dragon because you're they definitely have a dragon look and you say well i just looked at earlier dragons well no you didn't you had uh well nobody was painting dragons really at that time um i love Frazetta's work but he i'd seen him paint a big snake you know yeah conan killing a snake a serpent of some type and uh I didn't really see a Frazetta dragon. No. And the first time I painted a dragon was for TSR. And that was the, the freelance piece that they liked and, and decided for sure they want to hire me. But on that, I didn't know. The, the guy that taught, that had us to play D&D at work, he said, you can't just make up a dragon. I said, why? He said, they already got dragons. And you got to do it like theirs. And I said, well, so he had a monster manual. <laughs> and he flipped it and he said, here's the dragons, here's a, this dragon. And all I had was like the heads of dragons. They didn't look like dragons I wanted to paint. They just didn't. The closest one looked like a dragon in my mind was a white dragon. And he just he had sort of a dragon head, but he just had one horn going back. And mm. that was it. So, so it's a freelance piece. So I did that one white dragon. And um, it, it wasn't too good, but they liked it and they published it. And then when they hired me, and I went up there, and there's a story on its own, but finally they they, they hired me. Mm-hmm. And um, and the first dragon I had to paint there, I said, I don't like these dragons. Can I make up one? And, and there's a debate with my boss and someone like, I don't know, these are in the manual. These are every color dragon we got. And uh, I said, well, what if we I do the right color, but maybe change it up to look more like a dragon that I thought looked like a dragon, right. I guess. And, and I would seen statues of dragons, you know, pictures in magazines mm-hmm. of dragons where sculptors have sculpted. You know, or is that a, what's his name, Slaying the Dragon, the English uh, St. Saint Saint Slaying a Dragon? I would seen photos of that. Um, that big sculpting thing, and it looked like a dragon to me, you know. So I just painted my own dragon, and everybody liked it. But before I painted it that night, I went home, and I did, just like you said, I got out my encyclopedias. I looked up reptiles. I looked up dinosaurs. So I stayed the bones of dinosaurs, how they're made and how they walk. Then I looked up reptiles, lizards, and alligators, crocodiles, and stuff, and look at the scales and stuff. And I thought, okay, I've got to blend these things, two things together to make a dragon. And everybody seemed to like them. And it wasn't that I loved doing dragons, but it was part of the job. And then after a while, I was painting so many dragons, they called me the dragon master or something like that, some kind of nickname. I'm like, well, I don't, they're hard to paint. I mean, there's a lot of work painting a dragon, all the stupid scales, and you got the big wings, you got to to make the dragon look, you got this huge animal that can fly, a reptile that can fly and breathe fire and everything else, fantasy thing, but you got to make him real, and you got to put him in a landscape, or put him there where he's functional, doesn't, and I don't picture a dragon in my mind being clumsy and tripping over stuff with big old bulky feet like, like walking around like Frankenstein would, bang, bang. I, I see them as, it's like any, most reptiles I knew growing up, uh, they were fast, snakes, yeah. lizards, and they were made to where they could move. They they wasn't real clumsy. And I thought, 
and the way a dragon was so vicious in D&D, &D, I thought, he's got to be quick. He can't be some big legs like an elephant. Boom, right. boom. Right. He's got, he's going to be quick and agile. And so I tried to make my dragons big, but yet look like they could run and fly and, and, uh, and fight. And so I made the, more and more I made the front legs almost using human anatomy, exaggerated anatomy. And the back legs, okay, he's a predator. So if you realize that all predators, their front legs bend like our, like our arm. It has an elbow to it. Whereas animals that graze and eat grass and stuff, like horses and cows and sheep, their front legs bend backwards. They got a knee. So I made sure that the dragons was, he had to use his arms, his front hands. In D&D, &D, the dragon was agile. He could, he could actually read, turn pages of a book. He could do things. So his right. front legs had to be like hands. So, so I based my pattern like on a basic predator and then do the other things to right. it. Right. Everybody seemed to like it. So. Yeah, absolutely. So... Now we've got aspiring artists and, and established artists too that respect your your work in terms of what they can or should do to is it like muscle memory that you've got that is able to do certain things or is it just a matter of being there and just constantly visualizing your art, visualizing that image, the emotion, the season? What is it that in your head that keeps the well, painting being created? You named it all. All oh, that's there. That's got to be there. That's a must. And I think, okay, I'm, I'm 73 years old right now. I'll be 74 in a couple of months. And it's just the other day it hit me. What makes me different? I've seen artists struggle over small things in the painting and, and where I would breeze through it, some of it. I mean, we all have problems in the painting. Mine's usually getting the right colors. <laughs> yeah. I'm still working hard with color. Uh, I think after going through all this, and just ha just it hit me the other day, I, I thought, I've got a really good visual memory. I can't remember names with anybody hardly. Uh, my wife now, she sharps the tack, but she she fills in half my words. I'm like, well, you know, so-and-so, I, I know, I, what's his name? And she knows the name, this or that. But visually, I could almost draw you a picture of the guy, okay? Right. My visual memory is, is really strong, and that goes back even from my childhood, looking at things, touching, feeling. I would like, lay down on rocks and look at moss. How does moss grow? And we used to know what moss, but how does it grow? Is it, and get down and look at the little roots and see how it grows up. Um, everything I look at, rocks, I noticed... Not too long ago, somebody said, well, I can always tell your paintings. I said, how? I said, by your rocks. You train all your rocks the same way. I'm like, no, I don't do it. I started looking. I did. I've been neglecting rocks. <laughs> I had an Elmore rocks. It was like, they were just rocks. And I'm like, oh, my God. I just tore me up. So I started going out photographing rocks, looking at rocks, forced me to look at rocks. And and all my rocks basically the same color with a few little cracks in them, and that's about it. Well, I got to looking at real rocks more and more, and they got moss, and they had different colors, and all this is going on. I'm like, man, how could I miss rocks? I'm always sticking rocks in paint. That's the problem. I'm just sticking them in there as fillers right. and painting the standard Elmore rock. And so 
I was glad somebody brought that to my attention because I hadn't noticed it. And it looks like I should have. So then I started really looking at rocks again, like for the first time. And so I've painted some pretty good rocks since then. Um, it's hard to remember everything. <laughs> yeah. But but I'm always trying to look at a painting when I'm doing something. Like about two years ago, I was painting a painting for myself. I managed to get the time to work it in. And in this painting, there's just a normal waterfall. It's about the height of the ceiling to the floor in a room is a waterfall about that big. Not a big wide one, just like a stream that comes over and falls, a pretty little stream. I'd done this whole painting. It was like late fall, a little bit chill in the air, early before winter, a little hazy. The colors were right. Man, I was doing this painting. was just falling into place, everything. I was like, man, <laughs> this is so good. I love this. My wife liked it. She said, that just reminds me of when I was a kid playing out here. I got all the way up. And right in the front, this waterfall comes down. And this waterfall, be a breeze. I started painting the waterfall. I kept messing it up, messing it up. I painted the waterfall six different times and let it dry each time and look at it, and it wasn't right. So I thought, what in the world? I've got to see how the water is falling. I said, I've never studied a waterfall enough. I said, I can't, it's not, you just can't just start doing whitey foam stuff. I've got to. Right. I've got to get in there and see. So I start, I went online and started looking at waterfalls. Well, it wasn't helping a lot, but I finally found where some raging rivers and water flying up and foaming. And I got to see, well, like everything we see, especially, well, everything, is broken down into random patterns, repeating patterns, but they're random, like trees and grass and rocks and stuff. That's how we, we recognize them because of these ra random Patterns, repeating patterns that are familiar. So you got to get down to that. What is that pattern? Now it's going to be distorted and random as the water flows, or as a tree grows, or the wind blows. But what is that pattern? And so I started looking at these things. And finally, my wife said, "How is that going to help you?" I had these, <laughs> it's like a river and it's foaming, blowing. I'm zoomed in, you know, like I'm in the river looking, and and I. And she said, I don't know what you're doing. You're crazy. And finally, I said, I got it. I got you. It just hit me. It's like, you SOB, I got you. I know what it is. So I went back over and painted the waterfall perfectly. Or pretty good. I wouldn't say perfectly, but I, I wanted to get it done. I'd been sitting around now for a month, me repainting the same thing. But it came out good. My wife finally said, well, that looks like a waterfall now. I said, well, good. But I just saw how water, as it falls, as it splinters off, usually it's coming out in a in a, in a droplet of some type, a big right. droplet, which is, if if there was no gravity, it'd be a round ball, you know, of right. water. But as gravity pulls it, and the motion and the speed is traveling, this this ball breaks apart into a more of a plane, and it's and it that that circle gets distorted to almost triangular or or a square oblong type. Not with sharp corners, but, you know, these basic shapes. And it's breaking up this way all over the place, all random, these sort of shapes. And once I understood that, it's like, I got you now. And I think I could paint waterfalls from now on um, and do them pretty good just from my memory. Because I've seen them and looked at them, but I didn't know how they broke up and the foam and everything mm -hmm. was made. Yeah. So then on... Um on your art and 
as you were building a name for yourself and building a reputation and obviously earning an income for your family to be able to, to support it. So how much of it was commission work? How much of it was just working for like the TSR? And I, I gathered from the, at the get-go, it wasn't what you wanted to do. It was either working for a client as, like I said, TSR or that type of thing, um, or commission to do something, and then you had to do what they wanted you to do. Well, actually, before I even got to TSR, most mortgages published, it was sort of left up to me. Some of it was, some of it was I just sent in a painting I'd done, and they published it, so it was all me. The ones National Lampoon would give me would be, here's what we want. Roughly, it'd be a stupid scene, but I got to paint it any way I wanted to convey that joke. Mm -hmm. And so it was sort of fun. I had freedom. When I, get, when I went to TSR, they also give us freedom. That was something I couldn't, you know, now I look back, I couldn't believe. Because I think they didn't know that in these big publishing, like, books and stuff, yeah. they would almost tell you what to, a lot of things would tell you what to paint. And you have to sit in sketches, and they'd shoot it down, another sketch, they'd shoot it down, okay, this one's pretty close, but you got to change this and this. They wasn't doing that. They didn't know that, I guess they had the right to do that, which was great for them, because we all of us artists were all love fantasy. We, were, we started all playing D&D &D to know the product we're playing. Mm -hmm. And D&D &D itself is, each individual player is free to do what he wants to do in the game. You can work together as a unit, or you can go your own way and probably don't last too long out in the wilderness by yourself, being a group. Uh, so we played, so we understood it. And so they would give us an assignment, and they hardly know our direction, hardly any at all, wow. which was great. Now, if we'd done something, the only time we'd get in trouble would be we'd do a woman too skimply cat-clad, you know, we, oh, there's a beautiful woman over here, man, the wizard queen, or, you know, something like this. And they go, put more clothes on her. We can't sell it. This is, remember, there's the 12 and 13, 14 year old boys. If they love it, we would. <laughs> I said, no, we can't. The parents are complaining. They're like, oh, okay. So we have to put more clothes on. That's about the only critique we got. You know, they, they let us do what we wanted to do. And that was, I think, the key to their success there. Each one of us artists painted fantasy. We saw it through different eyes. Uh huh. And we did it different ways. And th then the, the management realized, okay, this guy's paintings is more this genre. This guy's is more mass market. This guy's more niche market. And mm -hmm. certain games, they would assign some artists to certain product lines because right. the way we painted. Right. Instead of trying to make me do something totally opposite than what I'd like to paint, you know, instead of just coming in and say, I'm your boss, I can make you paint anything. Well, that's good, but your product's going to suffer. If Let the artist, if you liked his art so much you hired him and he's good, let him get a 50% at least input into it or 75% and you'll get a better piece of work. Yeah. Because when you just come in and say, first of all, you don't have a brain in your head. They're not saying that, but that's what they're in, implying. Uh, implying. You don't have a brain in your head. I'm going to tell you how to paint this so we can sell it. And by the time you're finished, you're like, who is going to buy the piece of crap he just described? Nobody. It's not going to sell anything. And uh, and believe me, I've had that to happen. You know, it's like, well, you know, you're paying me so many thousands, so I'll do what you say. I got to pay bills anyway. So, you, but sometimes you hate to sign your name to it. 
Right. And uh, then there was paintings that they would bring, <laughs> last-minute paintings. You know, we need a painting done this afternoon. An oil painting from... In one afternoon? One afternoon. And um, they got me to do a few, and I get angry, and they'd go to somebody else. Keith did a couple, and Jeff Easley did some. But I did one or two, and I hate them so bad. The next one I did, I said, I can't sign my name to this. It's just not my work. This it's is done in like three hours. A full painting. And last time we'd put our oils up and break the acrylics out and really slap it on there, you know, acrylics dry quick. And, uh, well, most of it we had to do it in acrylics to get it done that time and get it right. off to be screened and everything shot. And so I made up a name, Jack Fred, because it was a name I called myself when I was teasing playing with my kids. I was acting like an old southern country boy, talk like this, and, and I was, like, real silly and and. I think my daughter said, well, what's your name? I said, Jack, Fred. And so <laughs> uh -huh. so I was playing this character playing with my kids. So I was thinking, what can I sign? I said, I'm going to sign my name. Just Jack Fred looked like he's about the mentality that would have done this painting. So I signed it Jack Fred. And so then a few days later, Keith had one of those one afternoon paintings, and he did it. He said, what did you sign that by? I said, Jack Fred. So he signed Jack Fred. So there was about... Maybe four paintings, something like that. I don't know exactly. It was signed by Jack Fred. And later on at convention, our people asked me, now, who was Jack Fred? There was you and Keith. But who was the artist Jack Fred? He was pretty good. <laughs> but it was us <laughs> using that name, you know. Wow. So <laughs> Now, one thing that Owen Hubbard said in, in his art series, one is that art is like a quality of communication and... That's like the senior datum and being able to really communicate to your audience and that if you lose communication by overdoing technical expertise, you actually then lose a message, what you're trying to say there. Do you have a particular opinion on that? I agree with that. Elon uh, Hubbard, I mean, he could write. He, 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 he was a very, he had to be a very brilliant man. Um, I read some of his books. I liked them, and he was spot on as far as like sci-fi and stuff you know yeah and because uh, i always stayed current on on sci-fi stuff i really wanted to do more sci-fi and never really got to because and um but yes everything you put in the painting should enhance the main subject matter to tell your story basically when i do a painting i'm trying to tell a story it might not last but it just might be an expression of something. The story might last three seconds or it might last an afternoon. What right. I'm trying to express. A, a, a beautiful woman taking a rest, a break, and sitting on a on a rock under a giant oak and maybe a, some strange little animal in the background and she's in a pensive mood. I want to suck you into that evening with her and you can feel what she's feeling. So everything I paint, colors and all, has got to focus and right. add to that. I can't all of a sudden go over here and show off how well I can paint and just screw up the whole painting, you know, doing something totally different. And same as if you're doing something in a moment of action. I personally, I don't do a whole lot of big action scenes. And uh, I, know I, was, I love Frazetta's work. I love Frazetta's work. And he did a lot of action scenes. He was gifted at that. That was his gift. I've never seen anybody to handle action like him. 
I mean, even when it's not a lot of action, it's still that tenseness is there. And I think it's with everything, his the drawing, the the color, everything creates that. So right. but to me, action lasts a second or two. Then the action's over. I like emotion. And I think all the emotion is before or after an action. And so I like to do something before the action starts. Right. Because I lived, like I said, grew up in the woods, I've done a bit of everything. I've I've had been chased by dogs, attacked by them, been chased by bulls, and and you're running for your life and jumping, <laughs> uh, ridden horses, and them fall with you and a huge collapse. And the emotion part was either right before the accident happened, right, right, or what it was was like, oh my god, and then in a two seconds it's over, and then you're there like after action. I'm wounded, I'm hurt, I'm okay, I can't believe it, or are or, or you uh, same with a fight, two people fighting. Um, a lot of it is uh, the emotion part is usually right before or right after the action, or at the very start of the action or after it's over. That's when whatever's been done, the damage is done, and the emotional part sets in. During a fight, now I was a little guy, so I had to do my share of fighting. It's not a lot of emotion, you know. It's, and, and most fights with young people don't last very long. Like right, teenagers, just a few blows and that's it. Uh, not like your TV and movie scenes too very much. And going for thirty seconds, yeah, forty-five seconds. They're pretty quick. And the emotion was before the fight, and then after the fight. And and with to get that emotion, you can use all the elements of light and shadow, color special effects of weather, everything. You've got to help create that emotion. I like to do more of that. I've wanted to, but I haven't had a chance because to make a living, you got to do a lot of paintings. Mm -hmm. It's sort of designed by other people, and you don't get a lot of freedom. And now, at my age, I only got, I hope I'm like my mom and dad, and a lot of my family lived to be up in my 90s. I want to take the rest of my life now to paint my own paintings and, and enjoy it and do them my way without any third party telling me what to do or how to right. do or their ideal, yeah. Yeah, now you told me once a little while ago that you did a um, tarot card deck or a card deck that Frank Rosetta, someone showed it to Frank. Oh, that was, yeah. Um, this just happened this, this year. A friend of mine, um, Michael, he did, you know, back a few years ago when all, everybody's getting the, the fantasy collector cards. Yeah. Different companies are putting them out. Yeah. And like fantasy artists doing cards. And, and, and so Mike had a company and he, he was getting some of the major fantasy artists doing cards with him. And he did a good quality job. He got me to do a set. And what he would do, he lived pretty close to where Frank Frazetta was at, lived. They both lived in Pennsylvania. And I'd never met Frazetta. He was like my hero. And if I ever met him, I don't know what I'd said. I would just sort of <laughs> mumble something. <laughs> just acted like a fool because I, I worshipped his art. I never tried to copy him. I was influenced by him. Copying him, you can't beat Frazetta at Frazetta's game. I didn't ever dream of copying him. 
Uh, but let the influence flow through you, the emotion. Yeah. So anyway, Mike would take, every time he'd do an artist set of cards, and he did a lot of artist cards, he'd take a box of them out there, and there was like you know, close to, I guess, 100 cards in a set. Uh-huh. And he would take them over to Frazetta's house, and they would open it up, and Frazetta would go through them and look at them, and he would say, this artist got it. This artist don't have it. You know, this artist, he just don't have it. Then sometimes he said, well, this, this artist has it pretty good. Yeah. And Mike said, I don't know what it was. He was always saying he has it or he don't has it, have it or maybe he's got a little of it. And he said, I never knew what it meant. But he said, I finally got your cards done. I took them over to, to Frank. And I, he was telling me this for the first time. This was like this year. I'm like, oh, my God, Frank actually looked at my art. My God, I was just floating here. I didn't know. I knew he was going to tell me what he said, and I was just dreading what Frank would say. And uh, and he said, uh, he, he brought me the first box, and Frank said, put that over there on, on, on the table or the mantel or something and bring me another box. And I'm like, well, okay. He didn't know why he set up this box. I had to bring him another one. So he brought him the next one. And open this one. And he starts going through the cards. And he kept one. He said, This kid, this kid has it. And he said, So whatever it was, Frank said you had it. <laughs> and he said, he said it very strongly. And I, I'm like, oh my God. Frank said I had it. Now I feel like I should do better art <laughs> just to represent him better. <laughs> <laughs> Even though he's long gone, I'm an old man, but it it really renewed my I don't know, inside my heart that if I've got it, let me give it to better use. I've had to use it to get make a living. And I didn't have the 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 freedom to just do my own thing. And I had two kids, college coming, you know, my wife and I both working and I built a new house. It was just stupid, but we did still it. have it, you know, we managed to salvage it and uh over the years. And um but for him to say that I had it, it really meant something to me. And I feel like I've wandered away from that it sometimes and the complexities of life and everything. And, and now I really want to go back uh, to that it was, was deep in me what I wanted to do when I saw things. Right. So I'd like to go back and capture some of it if it's still there. That it now is a lot older than it was back then. So <laughs> I don't know what it would yeah. be like. So before I ask you how people can find you on your websites, I do have a question. You've been a judge now for several years. I met you yeah. at Dragon Con several years ago and, and invited you to be a judge. What do you find the most important and significant about being an uh, illustrator of future contest judge? Well, I think, first of all, okay, well, being a judge is difficult <laughs> because, you know, we, we, we judge. There's no names. We don't know how the age, uh, anything on the, on, the, on the artist or even the story side of things. Right. We don't know anything about the writers. So all we got to do is look at that art. And lots of times I wish we had more than one piece to look at, you know. And, uh, and then you're just comparing... You're just looking at the quality of that one piece that represents yeah, 12 this kid. pieces of art that mm -hmm. on the very end for the for the final judging. Earlier on, you'll yeah. see yeah, three different pieces ones. Yeah. Of, of each winner of each 
of each quarterly yeah. winner, but at the end you see one piece yeah. of all 12 winners. When you're judging, yeah, you've got several pieces to judge from to pick to narrow it down to here. Yeah. And I have to say that the best ones, you the one that win. I, I haven't seen it where I'm like, well, that wasn't, you know, he won, but he or she won, it wasn't that good. No, <laughs> the winners are always pretty. I think all of us judges see it about the same, writers and artists too, like oh, this kid's got it. Yeah. I guess it's that it again yeah. Frank was talking about. Some people has it and some people don't. I don't know what it is. It's it's the composition. It's the it's everything about the piece. It exudes something that touches you mm -hmm. in a way. And um, so the importance of being a judge. I then? do think one thing though. If I had a critique about judging, there's things that's sort of comical, and I like that. But you can't put a comedy piece up against a very big dramatic piece. If there was, and I know it would be make many complications and all this, so I know, you know, but uh, it'd be impossible to do. But, but some of the pieces, there need to be separate categories. It's almost somebody writes a story, the writers, they write this dramatic piece, it's just like kicks butt and it's, it's got emotion and everything, you know, all is there. And then somebody writes something that makes you laugh the whole time long. Well, which do you choose, you know? Can this, guy that wrote the funny stuff be consistent in that because it's harder writing comedy than it is dramatic in a way to me it, I yeah. think it would be and I like comedy stuff too I've done comedy pictures a lot of, usually I did in drawings not so much as a painting because you're putting all that time so people can be like that's cool that's it but it's like I enjoy doing it you know yeah so uh, but no the judging is is as fair as it could possibly be I have told two people so far that I know of, maybe more, that I've seen their art at a convention someplace, and they were good, and I, and they're wanting, how can I help? And I'm like, it takes me a minute, and I re, re, remember this, like, oh, the, the contest, I'm a judge. And like, there is, I tell them about the contest, and I say, enter it, because your art's good enough. And, you know, your art's good, put it that way, but, but I know it's good enough to be accepted. And so they have, and they've turned out winners. At least wow. one of them turned out the one that the last year I was here, he was an overall winner. I met him at a convention in Arizona, a small little convention. We was out there because we were going to visit uh, in, uh, my wife's sister and her husband. You right. Know, or whatever. And um, so we was in Arizona at that little convention. This young, he, well, he's about 30 years old, I guess. And this was like his, he was... Asian, and I think his parents were more old school, like, you're getting old enough, you need to get a job and quit fooling with this art, and they're really putting the pressure on him. Well, his girlfriend was like, you've got to, you know, get a regular job, and they'd give him like a year or so to either get work or, or go get a normal job. And when I saw his art, I said, you're good enough to make it as an artist. And so I told him about this contest, and then I didn't know if he entered it or not. And then when I came here at the end of the year or for this, like yeah. I'm here, I walked in the room, and there he stood. He ran and hugged me. He said, I'm here. I made it. And it was like a huge feather in his cap. I mean, it gave him confidence all over again in himself. And he won overall. And it's like I felt so great for him because he was at that wall. At the, do, I, do I just give it up? Mm-hmm. And and that, a lot of artists that happens to them. It's it's like music. All the arts is that way. 
Sure. Uh, to make a living in the arts, music, drama, writing, acting, uh, art, uh, painting, all of it, uh, it's hard to break into and make a living because the sad part is most everybody that has a little bit of talent thinks they're good. <laughs> and so there's a whole lot of crap that's got to be waded through to find the ones that are consistently good and they're above the herd, you know. Yeah. And when you do spot those, like, you got a chance to do it. I'm not saying I can't guarantee you because to succeed, your art's got to be good enough or whatever your art is. It's got to be good enough to compete. Then it's your own personality and work ethic That's right. that takes you through. If you don't have that to back it up, you will not succeed. You've but got, then the contest does give you that. Yes. At least it gives you that. Well, you get in the pros. That you can say, okay, here you go. You've been, people have been doing this their whole life to tell you, you can, you know, it's up to you to do it. And it's not going to be easy, but it could pay off in the end. You know how many times through my career I might have been known all over the world, and I, I never would, I never cared about how famous I was. That wasn't part of it. It wasn't about right. fame. It's about making a living, paying the mortgage, putting food on the table. My wife worked too, covering insurances and things like this. And I had two kids. I wanted them to go through school, go to college, and everything. How do I make a living painting? dragons and stuff that don't exist to make a living doing that to educate my kids to give them a decent life so it was work 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 now if you love your work it's not work you can work yourself to death i've done that i've had several heart attacks and a stroke and quadruple bypass surgery but i'm still alive and i feel better than i ever have and mm -hmm. i will still paint i can't paint 20 hours a day like i used to but I can paint, um, I get a good eight hours in, and I'm sort of mentally tired. It's just Good my age. The day. But I try to put in that in every day if I can, every day if I can. Well, that's awesome. Well, we've already uh, gone past our, oh, our sorry about slide. That. No, that's totally fine. I'm just, I knew it would happen. It's just, you're so much fun to talk to and listen to. So for somebody to find out, you know, where do they find you, your art? Not that they can hire you for commission anymore, but at least they can see what you've done. Where do they and go? I, I sell prints of everything, just to have a lot of stuff. I've got a huge website, and it's at um, LarryOmore.com, uh, com. Well, that's pretty easy to remember. And, um, and I've got a guy that runs the site. He's very efficient, and uh, we do all the, all the prints that's there. We print them ourselves, my and wife you, and do you still sign copies, too? I sign them. I sign every one of them. And uh, sometimes I throw one away because the pencil lid broke right in the middle of the signing and screwed it up. And well, there's another one down the tube. That's however much it costs to make, you know. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it all comes from us. And uh, the website is is really that is my retirement now. I mean, it's done better than I ever dreamed it would. That's awesome. Yeah. And uh, and we're trying to get Jeff Easley. We we we've uh, I always looked ahead and and kept some way where I could duplicate my art some way, or I could print it and kept transparencies or files any way I could. And so when I started out, I could put up a whole site with my art. And some of the other artists didn't do it as much as I did. And they're getting older, and we'd like to help them out more. And, and the guy that runs my site is trying to get me, Jeff Easley. He's running Jeff's site now, and Clyde Caldwell trying to get him and a couple more of the artists that worked at TSR mm -hmm. and get them under one umbrella so you could come and see all the, a lot of D&D &D stuff. 
but uh, but it's but each site is separate, uh, you know. Yeah. But under uh, one, one umbrella. And that's what he's working on. I think it'll be needed. It'll help us all out. Absolutely. We're all getting older, and we just want to paint. Still yet. And that's paint awesome. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Larry. Thank you. And thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The Writers of the Future podcast is available on SoundCloud, iTunes, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, Player FM, iHeart, and Spotify. We've also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network where you can find these podcasts as well. The Writers of the Future series can be purchased wherever books are sold in the U.S., Canada, the U.K., Australia, and South Africa, and available everywhere else on Amazon. Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by Elrond Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to new and amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thank you very much, Larry. Thank you.